0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 9th of January. Busy show today. We started with the fact that your morning commute is set to get easier. That is thanks to a 330 million dirham upgrade to Umm Sakim Street. We talked bridges and tunnels with Hamad al Shahi, who's a director at Dubai's Roads and Transport Authority. Meanwhile, with the weather looking so good, loads of us are heading out to the desert. But as a consequence, we've seen something of a litter problem among the dunes. Dubai Municipality joined us on the show to explain what they've been doing to tackle the problem. And as several huge stars from the 80s and 90s make their way to the UAE to perform, we decided to delve into the financials of bringing divas like Mariah Carey to the UAE. How much are they getting paid? And why is the UAE suddenly proving so popular? We found out with Shiraz Hassan, who is the founder and CEO of the talent agency Fame by Shiraz. Plus, as psychologist chatbots attract millions of younger users... We asked whether we should be searching for counselling services online. Can a robot help you with problems? And is it a sensible solution to a shortage of psychologists or is it dangerous? big topic of conversation and we were delighted to welcome two experts onto the show. Uh, Rob Sparrow, he's a professor of philosophy at Australia's Monash Data Futures Institute. He actually specialises in the different ways in which humans are getting used to these new technologies and we also spoke to practising clinical psychologist Dr Kirin Hillier from Heriot-Watt University, Dubai. Meanwhile, scientists working on bringing back the woolly mammoth have a new species in sight, and it's the dodo. Lead paleogeneticist Ben Lam from Colossal Biosciences explained all on the show today. Plus, Chris McCarty, our editor of Sport, brought us up to date with all of the latest headlines, both on and off the pitch. Let's take a look at a story that I think will probably affect most of us who live here in Dubai. Um, the traffic's got really bad, hasn't it? I actually got caught in it yesterday on the school run. Did you, were you out on the roads? Did you notice how bad it was around four thirty, five pm And the only thing that basically kept me sane as I was inching my way down Umsakim Street was the knowledge that the Roads and Transport Authority are doing something about it. In fact, yesterday they announced a 330 million dirham upgrade specifically designed to improve traffic flow along Umm Sakim Street from al Kail Road, which is the E44, all the way up to the intersection of Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road. That's the 311. It's a stretch of about four and a half kilometres. And the announcement is essentially an acknowledgement that greater capacity is needed. Um, we all know that Dubai's population is growing, and we certainly noticed it in the traffic. Now, that upgrade, which includes an 800-metre-long tunnel, is going to significantly reduce the travel time between the Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road and the al Kail Road. It's going to bring it down from 9.7 minutes to 3.8 I wanted to find out a little bit more about how that was going to work. So earlier, I spoke to Hamad al-Sheahi. He is a director of roads and traffic for Dubai's Roads and Transport Authority. And he told me a little bit more about the strategy. The
2: project of uh, improvement of Ommas Game Road is coming as per the RTA master plan, which is undertaken by the direction of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, followed by His Highness Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, is to improve the road between Al Khair Road and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zaid Road. Within that improvement, the capacity of the road will be doubled and will be increased to 16,000 vehicle per hour adding a tunnel, which is in the intersection in front of King's School and Al-Barsha South intersection. That's going to ease the traffic that's going towards Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road and coming from Sheikh Mohammed Zayed Road, going towards Jamila. And the area of the project is approximately 4.5 kilometers, and the tunnel will be serving four lanes in each direction as well.
1: Okay, so... I have to admit, I have a personal interest in this project because I spend a lot of my life heading towards that junction where King's Al-Barsha School is because my children's school is, is just off the motorway there. So can you tell me a bit more about where the tunnel will be? Is that going to be around that junction with King's Al-Barsha or is that further down the road?
2: So simply the tunnel will be passing the current intersection, giving a through movement for the traffic that's going on this Game Road and the intersection will be serving Al-Barsha South, where the schools are, a couple of schools and communities as well, as well as King's School on the other side of the intersection. So this will ease the traffic in the morning, giving connectivities, entry and exit, as well as will ease the movement of the through traffic that's going on this game towards Jumeirah and towards Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road.
1: When is work due to start? Because I know that this is the announcement of you actually awarded the contracts, haven't you?
2: Yes, we uh, have awarded the contract. Uh, we announced that we start immediately. The work has already been started on site. The work started for the services and underground utilities. And soon the public will notice the roadworks happening and the tunnel work happening.
1: I have to say, I have noticed, like I say, I spend a lot of time on the road. I have noticed some works going on on the other side. I actually thought you were just going to expand the road. So to hear that there's going to be this tunnel it is very exciting indeed. We all know that building works are fast in the UAE, that things happen quicker than perhaps in other countries. How soon are you expecting this tunnel and the other works to be completed?
2: So the work is in the stretch of 4.5 kilometre, the tunnel work, widening the existing road, increasing the capacity as well as constructing a new service road and collector roads up to Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road has been already commenced and will be completed within two years, inshallah. So we're we'll talking end of 2025, everything will be completed at site and work will be completed.
1: So I'm really intrigued at the idea that the RTA chose to build a tunnel because, of course, that's quite expensive compared to, you know, other methods of doing things. So why a tunnel rather than a, a bridge, for example? You know, how What is the thinking that goes into the designing of these new roads?
2: So when it comes to design, we include technical perspective as well as quality of life perspective. From technical point of view, we consider the future movement, the future infrastructure, future maybe bridges and roads, as well as the profile of the road. It's better to go down than going up as fair movement and safety. And from quality of life perspective, we consider noise we consider the privacy of the residential area around the tunnel or around the, the road in order for us to reduce the impact on the uh, residents living around the area. So in this area specifically, from t- technical and from a quality life point of view, it's better to do the tunnel in terms of privacy, reducing the noise, since we are looking at Barsat South, and a lot of residential area close to the tunnel. So this will be constructed as a tunnel. Same wise as the future movement and the future projects will be coming in the area, the tunnel will save the future movement, which will be considered within the work.
1: Obviously, everyone talks about the traffic a lot in Dubai at the moment. You know, we've seen this fantastic population increase. But as a consequence, we certainly noticed that the roads have got busier. Is that something that you guys are aware of? at the Roads and Transport Authority. And is it a big focus for you to try to ease those traffic concerns?
2: Of course, Roads and Transport Authority has a master plan and continuously revising and continuously doing improvements, projects that's going to improve the road network, as well as other projects and other policies and et cetera, which is serving the growth of the Emirates and the growth of the population, as well as the development that's happening around the Emirates. So as we're developing, RTA will be developing at the same time simultaneously to have the best infrastructure and best quality of life.
1: That's Hamad al-Shahy. He's Director of Roads and Traffic at the Dubai Roads and Transport Authority. I've got a question for you. Have you been out to the desert recently? It is Amazing weather at the moment, a really good time to sort of do a trip to the dunes, although a little bit chilly for camping. I'm not sure I'd want to be staying there overnight. Uh, we went out just before Christmas and I was reminded at how brilliant a place it is for the children to run around. Uh, it, You know, you really do feel like you're out in nature. But I have to say, I did notice quite A lot of litter, quite a lot of rubbish lying around on the ground. And it it really surprised me because it's such an eyesore against the sand that I'm amazed that anyone can sort of leave it behind, if you know what I mean. But it got us all thinking here at Dubai Eye 103.8 about who actually is responsible for keeping the desert clean And it turns out uh, that in Dubai, it is the municipality. Now, Jen tracks them down. And I caught up with Hussein Abbas last night. Now, he's the specialised hygiene section manager for Dubai municipality. The line, I have to admit, wasn't fantastic. So you might need to turn your radio up a bit. um, But it's really interesting to hear from Hussein. How his organisation manages the problem.
3: The Municipality monitor the cleanliness of the city on a daily basis, and we have approved plan for this one. We have areas that are crowded with visitors, now especially with this pleasant weather that starts from November until the end of March. When we talk about the desert especially, we have a number of 82 cleaners have been allocated, and they are occupied with all cleaning tools and equipment. They have eight desert bikes dedicated to collecting waste from these sites. We added 21 different uh, vehicles for transporting and collecting and lo- loading waste on daily basis during the three shifts. We have coordinated with the winter camps and tourism companies since they have different events they are conducting in the desert to make sure that they are following the general hygiene requirements. They have the waste tools and equipment required to make sure that they are keeping the area clean.
1: It's really interesting to hear that that you are very much on top of the commercial entities that are operating in the desert. How about individuals? Because it seems to be quite a problem still with the public leaving litter behind.
3: Yes, although the majority of people, they are following the correct method of exposing waste, we still have a small fraction of people causing this type of negative behaviour. The type of waste we are talking about include food containers, cutlery, charcoal and barbecue remnants. Removing this kind of debris takes a lot of effort from our labourers, but uh, we still emphasize on awareness among our visitors and urging them to dispose waste properly. And we are noticing that uh, although there are thousands of people are um, enjoying the desert, there are small fraction only of people are uh, maybe causing this kind of uh, negative behavior. And uh, hopefully uh, with a type of awareness and our people in the field will be able to solve this issue or at least bring it down more and more for the future.
1: It's interesting you mentioned there the charcoal, because I imagine some people think that they might be allowed to leave the charcoal because it's sort of a natural product, but but that's not the case, is it?
3: No, no, not at all. Actually, charcoal and any kind of putting anything on the sand is forbidden because it will uh, damage the wildlife, it will damage uh, the sand, it will cause issues. You know, camels are uh, roaming around that area, it may eat it and it may cause a problem that's why for us whenever we are talking to people we are urging them whenever they are going to the desert keep your waste bags with you make sure that you are using portable grills for barbecuing so that there will be no trace of embers at the sands.
1: What other rules should people be following when it comes to leaving no trace when they go to the desert?
3: Of course there are waste containers provided by the municipality all over the areas. People should collect their traces of charcoal, whatever left there, and keep it on this waste bags and use these waste containers to make sure that the, the area are clean as it was.
1: How do you monitor litter in the desert? Do you do patrols?
3: Yes. Actually we have teams all over the area. Especially for the desert area, we have 13 supervisors working on different shifts to make sure that people are following all the rules and regulations. If we need it, we will apply any violations, especially if any misbehavior was uh, noticed. We have the provision of local order number 11 for 2003 regarding public health and community safety in the Emirates of Dubai. There are terms there dealing with this kind of negative behavior, like uh, throwing waste in public areas or lighting fires or barbecue in places not designated by the municipality.
1: Can people actually be fined for leaving litter or behaving in a way that they shouldn't?
3: Yes. According to the local order, there are fines will be conducted. Actually, now the debate municipality objectives to create awareness more. But in case of needed, there is a fine will be applied 500 dirham for this kind of behaviour, like throwing waste in public areas or lighting fire in places not designated by the Municipality.
1: Do you ever organise sort of community events where the public can come and help pick up litter?
3: Yes, this is one of the main activities that we have. In 2023, we have 41 cleaning campaigns and engage over 2,000 participants in cleaning desert sites. This is only for the desert. Uh, We have cleaning campaigns all over Dubai, which include the beaches as well. But for the desert site, in 2023, we have 41 voluntary initiatives.
1: And if anybody goes to the desert at the weekend or maybe in the evenings and they see a particular site where there is a problem, can they contact you to inform you of its location?
3: Yes, directly they can call 100-900. We are uh, working 24 hours. Our team, if not in the location, they will be there on time. They can use the debate municipality uh, application to report any kind of violation they notice, even in the desert area. We have distributed different containers for charcoal or barbecue, even for general waste. Among all these areas in the desert, we are talking about more than 350 containers were distributed to make sure that people will have the right way for disposing any kind of waste.
1: That's Hussein Abbas, who is a specialised hygiene section manager for Dubai Municipality. And it's sort of, um, that interview sort of got us thinking about the responsibility of, of each and every one of us to try to keep the desert clean. I know that my school, or the, the school that the children are at, is, is arranging a desert cleanup soon. Hello there, welcome back to the agenda. Right, we're turning our attention now to a really interesting discussion point. Um, and as Usual, I'm going to start with question. Um, I want to know if you've ever had therapy, and I want you to sort of think about having therapy and the person you talk to, what made it good, what made it bad, and whether or not a robot could have done that job. <laughs> there is a context to this, I promise. Um, I have had counselling, um, having some at the moment. Oddly enough, are you meant to say that on the radio? I think it's okay. Um, it's. You know it's really good, it's really helpful. It's really expensive, though. um, I think I'm going to be able to claim it on the insurance, but it's one of those things where you have to have five sessions so they can tell how messed up you really are and then and then the insurance company will decide whether or not it's going to pay for it. I think I, I paraphrase there, but you know what I mean. Um so imagine if you could get that advice for free, you know, helpful, kind guidance from say a chatbot maybe a chatbot like this
4: what brings you all here today
1: we're having a hard time
3: finding our balance as a family
4: everyone in the family needs to make adjustments to welcome this new addition your family dynamics are about to undergo tremendous changes and these changes directly affect you
0: yes thanks for that eliza
1: that is Eliza. Now, she's an AI-generated digital therapist who, it is just from a movie, but um, she plays a starring role in The Pod Generation. I don't know if you've seen it yet. But it turns out the stars of that movie aren't alone in turning to technology to solve their problems. In fact, millions of young people are already using um psychologist chatbots and it's in a really weird way. It's via a website called Character AI. It was originally set up to enable people to do role play for entertainment. Not something I have to say I would have signed up to, but fair dues. Everyone has their own vibe. Um, But But some of the users, instead of creating a sort of Harry Potter chatbot, which would pretend to be Harry Potter, they created characters with therapy or therapist or psychiatrist in their name. And one of them, who just calls itself psychology or no psychologist, has actually attracted more than 18 million hits since November. That means 18 million people have turned to that specific chatbot for help arguably now this is a BBC story we found it on their website you know full full credit to them but it has really got us thinking can a robot help you with your problems is it a sensible solution to what we are seeing at the moment which is a massive shortage of psychologists or is it dangerous joining me now to discuss the topic are two experts in this field we've got Rob Sparrow he's a professor of philosophy at Australia's Monash Data Futures Institute I've been told how to pronounce that and I think I've probably just got it wrong again apologies if that's the case Rob thank you very much indeed for joining me on teams how are you well thanks it's a pleasure Happy New Year to you. And then in the studio with me, I have Dr. Kieran Hillier, who is Assistant Professor in the School of Social Sciences at heriot Watt University, Dubai. Interestingly, also a practising clinical psychologist. Uh, Dr. Hillier, thank you so much for coming in to join us. Lovely to have you with us as well. Happy New Year to you too. Happy New Year to you. And actually, uh, Dr. Hillier, I'm going to start with you because mm. I think quite a lot of people might think they know what a psychologist does, mm. but they might be completely wrong. Right. Um, so, And it really does frame our conversation here. So, you know, from a practical point of view, what do you do as a clinical psychologist? What do, I do, what do you day? do? <laughs> what do you do? Let me summarise
4: like <laughs> eight years of study. Um, So, broadly, I would say, let's say someone comes in and they're interested in seeking out therapy. Um, So, initially, we do an assessment. For some um, psychologists, it might be very formalized in terms of how it's structured. For others, it might be a bit more unstructured. But we're trying to ascertain um, what it is that the person um, has sought out therapy for, what's their goals. Um, and what we feel like would be the most appropriate form of intervention. And that can often involve education as well because some people might come in with quite a lot of concerns and it might be the case that actually no, that's, that's quite normal for that process to be happening, particularly around areas such as grief um, or parents coming in expressing concerns about their children, particularly their teenagers, and us informing them that that's actually quite normal for a teenager, um, but then giving them advice on how to manage maybe that transition or that relationship and how that's changing over time. Um, But I'd say like a a very big part of it is building that, what we call a therapeutic alliance. So making the person feel comfortable that they can feel vulnerable um, in going into some quite – sensitive personal stuff and trusting you with that information feeling like that you're going to treat that respectfully and then based on that then you devise um, an intervention plan what you think would be the most appropriate form of therapy um, that would be most beneficial to that person and that might not necessarily mean working with you I think an important part of our role is determining well I'm not the best place person for you because actually this might be more of a a physical health condition, um, which is having like mental health um, effects. But then it's most appropriate to target the physical ailment first. And then we can see um, if that then corrects, you know, the mental health difficulties. Or it might be, I'm not the best therapist for you, um, either because of uh, preferences in terms of who they want to be working with or the type of Therapeutic modality that you think would be most helpful for that person. So, an example like EMDR, um, which is often used for like more trauma-focused um, difficulties, is not something that I am trained in. But I certainly will then, if I think that's going to be beneficial for someone, I might refer them on to another specialist who can do that.
1: There's a lot of a human in that. There yeah. is a lot of you making judgments. There's a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy, a lot of knowledge there. Mm.
4: And a lot of tailoring in terms of how you might discuss certain things. And so, um, and you're not always going to get this right, but it's it's determining, okay, how might um, I want to couch this so that it doesn't make this person feel bad about themselves or trigger a sense of stigma. You know, some people really like particular types of labels, for example, to say, like, this is what you have. And they can find that re- very reassuring and go, okay, so other people have this as well. Um, and there's treatments that have been devised to help me target this Um, but other people then might feel like oh this is this thing and that means I'm going to have it forever um, and I'm always going to be judged by this and so then determining how you want to couch that conversation um, so that the person feels empowered in terms of managing that and moving forward rather than maybe feeling trapped by it so yeah it's it's the tailoring of it and modifying Um, You know, we have broad principles in terms of um, how therapy works, but knowing how to best implement that um, for a particular individual.
1: Professor Sparrow joining us from Australia, professor of philosophy. Uh, Rob, I'm sure you knew what psychologists did already, but but how does that? Having heard that, what is your? I mean, you probably already had a sort of thought on whether or not it's appropriate to have a chatbot psychologist, but but what, but what do you? Uh, what would you suggest is is a better idea, perhaps?
5: Um, so I am very worried about people trying to address mental health conditions, or indeed being required to address mental health conditions uh, using an app. You know, it's a short step from saying, look, we don't have enough qualified people, here's an app for you, to requiring that people uh, you know, seek counselling and then say, look, the only thing we've got available uh, is an app. Uh, I think what Dr Hillier was saying about context and the connection to medical and lifestyle issues is really uh, important here. I think there's a lot going on uh, visually in a counselling environment. People are looking, uh, counsellors or psychologists are looking at the patient, seeing what their affect is. You know, are they biting their nails? Are they, you know, shaking with anxiety? There's a whole lot of contextual signals that I can't imagine uh, the apps being able to pick up on and of course I don't um, expect that they're governed by an appropriate code of ethics. They don't have the right uh, responsibility to the patient or responsibility to third parties that is also uh, important here. If I'm talking to you in a counselling situation and I reveal uh, that I'm you know, obsessed with killing the Prime Minister or I'm obsessed with you know, that my partner's cheating on me and I have fantasies of violent revenge, Uh, you know, in some circumstances, counsellors will have an obligation to um, alert people. And, again, I can't see the apps doing uh, any of that. So, I mean, you know, I don't think everyone who's going to Character AI psychologist app is really seeking therapy. I think some people are just role-playing talking to a psychologist Uh, But the idea that these things are going to provide the services of a psychologist, I think that's um, uh, a worrying fantasy.
1: What we're going to do is continue this conversation after the break. Uh, I may have to start playing uh, devil's advocate to try and sort of tease out some of the sort of various uh, different strands of this conversation. But I am delighted to say we've managed to persuade uh, Professor Rob Sparrow to stick with us. Also, Dr. Kiran Hillier. We can just lock the door on her. She's in the studio, so <laughs> she can't escape. Um, but we will be continuing our conversation on this. Loving all the comments that are coming through already. Thank you very much. Talal, who says, we really need a huge human aspect or emotional intelligence to make counselling sessions effective. I have to say, I wonder whether if you, if you only had a little worry or a little problem and it was two in the morning and there was no one else you could call, I wonder whether in that context, using a chatbot could ease a sort of worried mind. I, I wonder if there is still a role for um, for an online facility. So we are going to get into the details of that in the coming few minutes. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: Welcome back to the show. And we are in the middle of discussing whether or not it's appropriate to use a chatbot as a psychologist. Um, there is a reason for that. It's because millions of young people are apparently already asking AI for for advice, and joining me to give us sort of two unique insights on this topic is uh, our two experts in the field. We've got Rob Sparrow. Now he is a professor of philosophy at Australia's Monash Data Futures Institute, uh, where he specifically sort of specialises there in looking at the way in which um, you know the. The sort of uncomfortable real world ethical implications of adopting these sort of new technologies. I've also got Dr. Kiran Hillier, who is a professor in the School of Social Sciences at Heriot Watt University, Dubai. She's also a practicing clinical psychologist. And Dr. Hillier, I'm going to come back to you now, actually, because I wonder whether you could imagine your job being done by a robot. I can imagine parts of my job. Being oh, done interesting. By a robot. Um, I think and I, I definitely
4: agree with Dr. Sparrow's concerns around is this an admission that we don't have enough um psychologists professionals, which I definitely agree with. Um and then you have issues of access because as you mentioned, it's very expensive. Um and so then does that point to the need for more psychologists in the public health system? Uh and so it's this it's it's this difficult like navigation between Um, how do we ensure best services um, for people so as not to create unintended damage, but how do we also meet the very high demand for these types of services? And I think... Um, These types of technologies are going to help assist with that. Where given their current capacities, where I see that they're most useful is in like initial intake and triage um, perspectives where, you know, you might then have them answer a series of questions and then you could direct them to the most appropriate services or you could then give them some psychoeducation about um, basic management techniques. Um, So I think in the areas of psychoeducation and broad management, um, that can be very helpful helpful because as you know the scenario you mentioned would be if someone is quite distressed at two in the morning and it's not going to be really feasible for them to access a real person but then could they type like what might be some grounding exercises that I could do or like I'm having a dissociative episode if they're aware of that and so what might help bring me back. Um, That's interesting
1: actually because I think quite often psychologists do start with a a survey as such. And, and of course, that type of thing could be done online. Um, Professor Sparrow, I'm going to bring you in now. You know, is from your perspective, are we in a situation here where just because we can use a chatbot for a, as a sort of surrogate psychologist doesn't mean that we should use them in that way?
5: Look, I don't think we should use them Uh in that way, but I mean one of the things that 's obvious with this technology is it 's going to be very hard to regulate. I mean already there are any number of these things out there uh, they 're not going to be governed by national bodies anyone who's online will be able to access a bot uh, somewhere in the world uh, where regulation is very uh, lax, uh, so we are going to be living with these things um, I do. I guess people often overestimate uh, the role played by uh, human relationships in um, therapeutic relationships. I guess everyone wants to think it's that special connection they have with their therapist, and there's some evidence that the type of therapy doesn't matter very much in terms of outcomes that people seem to benefit from being listened to by somebody uh, with a sympathetic ear. Uh, But I did once hear a professor of psychiatry actually a decade ago said he thought he could automate 90% of his work, which included prescribing medications, because people would come in, they would say, I'm depressed and I want Zoloft, he would administer a survey, uh, as you described, and then give them a, a, a prescription and say, come back and see me uh, in however months. So if you think that there is, um, you know, this sort of routine aspect to um, to counselling or therapy, um, then maybe there's a role for these things. Again, I worry about people, a chatbot saying the wrong thing to someone. A a colleague of mine was working on a chatbot for people with eating disorders, and she was talking about how difficult it was to respond when someone said, uh, in that context, I'm feeling really fat. And, of course, ChatGPT will typically respond with positive reinforcements. Oh, yes, you are, you know, you are looking a bit overweight, you know, and that's okay. Uh, but in some contexts, that's precisely the wrong thing uh, to say. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm sceptical, but I'm also conscious that people are going to be making these arguments about ease of access. You know, do they differ from self-help books? Uh, they're available all the time. It's pretty, pretty easy to um, roll those arguments out as well.
1: I mean, it's such a fascinating topic, certainly something that we've only just sort of touched the surface of, but I suppose you know the the, the concept has only just started as well. Um, Really lovely to have you both join us on the radio. Thank you very, very much indeed. You just heard the voice there of uh, Professor Rob Sparrow. Uh, He's a Professor of Philosophy at Australia's Monash Data Futures Institute. We've also had uh, Dr. Kieran Hillier in the studio, Assistant Professor in the School of Social Sciences at Heriot-Watt University, Dubai, and a practising clinical psychology. thank you very much to both of you it's been a great pleasure you certainly got the conversation going and that is what it's all about lots of people getting in touch on the text lines with their views so thank you very much indeed for your time you might have heard me mention it yesterday over the weekend i headed down to sadiat island to see Mariah Carey in concert. I very proudly bought the tickets because I am something of a fan. She was absolutely brilliant. Uh, And she's not the only massive star in town. We've got Take That performing this weekend in Abu Dhabi at the Sale GP, the Mubadala Sale GP. That's on Saturday. We've got Sting coming before the end of the month. Simple Minds are going to be at the Coca-Cola Arena in February. And then what was the other band? Oh, Wet Wet Wet. They're one of several throwback acts. They're going to be performing at the Rewind Festival at Blah Blah. Um, That's in Dubai. And that reminds me that... um, I saw Niall Rodgers uh, back there in November. Niall Rodgers, I had no idea. He basically wrote nearly every single song you've ever heard of. Uh, I mean, really extraordinary star. But of course, a sort of, legacy star. You know, he was big in the 80s. He was big in the 90s. And it just got me thinking, you know, what are the financials of bringing divas like Mariah Carey to Abu Dhabi? Because it was quite a boutique audience. You know, it was a proper audience. It wasn't a private party or anything. But it was quite a small audience. And I was just like, how on earth are they paying for that? And I wanted to find out, And so I went to a man who knows. Uh, Shiraz Hassan is the man who knows. He's the founder and CEO of Fame by Shiraz, well known for bringing some of the biggest, both artists and stars and actors to the UAE for sort of personal appearances. And uh, I'm delighted to say he's managed to make time to come into the studio. Shiraz, thank you so much for coming Uh, into Dubai It's an absolute pleasure. Too busy yesterday. I want to, can I say what you were doing yesterday? Yeah, go for it. He was having a meeting with the uh, the producers of Dubai Bling.
6: Oh, yes. Watch out, guys. Yeah. I can't say anything. But it, oh, my goodness. Meeting.
1: It's quite exciting. So um, just to give you a sense of how busy this man is. Uh, very, very good of you to come in. How come we're seeing so many of these really quite impressive stars in the UAE at the moment?
6: So first of all, um, I have to give a really big respect to the government. Yeah. Okay, first of all, because what they have done, they have opened up hospitality on another level. I've traveled the world with celebrities all over the world, with big stars, J-Lo, you know, Zendaya, Kardashians, Bieber, Miley Cyrus. I've traveled. There's not one country in the world that treats a celebrity the way they are treated in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, hands down. Start
1: Interesting. There. So they Nowhere. have a great time when they come here. Oh,
6: believe me, I've been everywhere, and I've go when when you're with a celebrity, you go to the top of the line, right? You meet the prime ministers, the kings, the royalty. So you go. But what the UAE has done, not only is it a safe place, but when it comes to hospitality giving, there's something called triple VIP, which I can tell you right now. I have a team right now that are working with some of the biggest stars at the Golden Globes over the last you know last day or so, right? Yeah there's no such thing as VIP compared to when you come to Dubai. So let's start there, right? The way they're treated. So in that's UAE,
1: like posh restaurants, everything. gifts.
6: From the moment they arrive at either in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi, it's VIP all the way until you get to the hotel, to the cars, to the security, to the customer service, to the hospitality, to the local culture. Everything is on another level in the UAE. So let's you get a taste of it, right? So when yeah. you when you get spoiled, so straight away, now celebrities are telling their managers, get me bookings. You know, I can tell you now after COVID and after the strike. Okay, actually, we're still having a strike right now in Hollywood anyway. But um, the number one place where celebrities in Hollywood want to come right now is here. That's Dubai, so interesting. And I would, they want it. Before, you would have to call an agent, call a publicist, call a manager, and you're fighting, you're hustling and everything. Now the stars want it.
1: That, I mean, that must ease the path hugely. Absolutely.
6: Listen, agents are deal killers. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> they're not the easiest piece of people to work with, right? They, they're looking for their percentages. They're looking to get the maximum, you know, for their clients. But the, now the celebrities are saying themselves, how can you? You know, I've, I've worked, I've brought J-Lo, you know, to the Middle East, you know, and I'm consistently in touch with big stars and their management consistently say to me, Shiraz, what opportunities do you have for our talent in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. This is something where they're calling me.
1: That I mean, that is just an amazing scenario. Yeah. But what are the financials of mm. these events? Because mm. obviously, although they want to come, mm. they still want their fee. Of course,
6: they want their money, right? Yeah. You know, and you and know. I
1: have to say, events like the Nights, at Night, many, in fact, many of the events that we've mm. been to here, mm. it doesn't look like they're necessarily making a profit. Mm. Because... So, for example, if I go to a concert in London, hmm. you're going to have to pay a thousand dirhams for a, a half decent ticket. Not even, hmm. in fact, high up in the gods, frankly. Hmm. Here, it's more like 300 dirhams. Hmm. And, and so I just, how are they, are they not making so money? So, first
6: of all, there's two different ways, right? If they're going on a world tour, yeah. right? So, you've got your big companies like Live Nation and other companies around the world that are doing this. They'll pay the artist one big lump sum. Okay. okay? So, you've got to travel all over the world. And based upon performance on each city, you get even more bonuses. So they're going to show up anyway around the world. So they're already on a world tour. So they've already got their, you know, their flights, their accommodation. It's already mapped out, right? Okay. So they have their prices. But if it's a special appearance, right? And I'll tell you, just as JLo as an example, right? Uh, I booked her to come to Qatar, okay, and it was a twenty minutes performance. That's it. Okay. Okay. A private dinner. <gasps> With 500 guests, and she literally had to go to a mall, uh, literally, which was only like 30 minutes from there. Go to a private dinner, dance for 20 minutes, and she was paid upfront two million dollars. Whoa! Plus plus 900 thousand dollars for the jets. Okay. Okay. Then plus plus your dancers, your you know your staging, your rehearsals, and you know your malls, your activations. You're you're in at five mil. At okay. this point, you know, and then plus, obviously, the fame fee, of course.
1: Of, that, of that, course. That's, that's at least 50% on top of that. <laughs> of course, at least. Course, right? How about, um you know, when you see a big star performing at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix or mm. Mariah, frankly, mm. or I mean, any of the big stars Like, take that are going to mm. be at the sale GPM. There's only three of them. So mm. maybe it's a bit of cut price. Yeah. But what are you looking? I mean, we were I was arguing with my husband. I was like five mil. You know, she's a huge star, Mariah. Surely yeah. it's five mil. Yeah. He was like, "No, I think more one." Like, because yeah. he thought I was just banding around yeah. big numbers so, for so, the sake. So
6: here's how it goes, right? So first of all, you are right. You know, it is tough to make money, so yeah. that's why you do need government support. Okay, right, absolutely. Okay, without the government pulling out the red carpet and giving all the spec, any promoter can do whatever. But if you don't have the backing from the government, it starts there. Then you know, I give uh, full respect to the government. And then it comes down to, okay, Mariah, you know, you want to come. Of course, they're going to ask for $5 million. Of course, they're going to ask for $7 million.
1: Wow. So you're basically
6: going to say to them, here's $1 million in cash, okay? Offshore. One hour's work, triple, triple VIP, take it or leave it. Or I'm going to go to Celine Dion. I'm going to go to Katy Perry. I'm going to go to, you know, Jennifer Lopez. I'm going to go to Rihanna. And if I have to push it to 1.5, I'll push it to 1.5. So cash is king. If anyone tells you Mariah Carey was paid $5 million, that's absolutely not true. Interesting. It's not true. Okay. So your husband may be a private talent agent because he's got the the scoop. Because at the end of the day, it's down to anything, right? It's your negotiating, right? There is a certain price limit. Even some of the stars that you were talking about, they might get less. So they'll say, listen, we'll give you... Five hundred thousand landed. If the tickets sell above this many seats, then you start getting bonuses. Right? So you work both ways, right? So you could put up a down payment, somewhat like a jailer, once it are all up front, no matter what. Another star will say, pay me X amount, fifty percent now. If I really reach out on the crowds and I push it on social media and it's a sellout, then you're gonna give me bonus money you know so that's Keeps, how it really works my
1: goodness Shiraz I could keep you in here for two hours chatting about this topic in fact all day uh, but sadly I'm already very late for the news but it's been a great pleasure to have you join us in the studio thank you for solving the argument between me and my husband and for lifting the lid on Listen what goes to your on right behind you. the scenes <laughs> <seat. laughs> you'd love you for that uh, Shiraz Hassan founder and CEO of Fame by Shiraz thank you for Thanks your time lot. as always
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: We've all heard the phrase dead as a dodo, but that's going to have to change because a group of scientists are planning to bring back the dodo from the dead in a process that they are calling de-extincting. They're going to have to come up with something better because that just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like a real word. But it's all happening at the US-based biotechnology and genetic engineering company, Colossal Biosciences. Now, they're not just pursuing the de-extinction of the dodo. Uh, they're also going for the woolly mammoth and, and have been for some time. Um I suppose when it comes to the dodo, worth mentioning that it has been extinct since 1681 uh, and it was hunted into oblivion by both humans, but also other natural predators. And the team at Colossal want to change that and they want to reintroduce it to its native Mauritius habitat. We wanted to find out more about this, what is frankly one of the more extraordinary stories we've ever heard. So earlier I spoke to Ben Lamb. He is the CEO and co-founder and lead paleogeneticist at Colossal Biosciences. And he told me that the team have a very good reason for selecting the dodo.
7: Well, the dodo is the symbol of human-caused extinction, right? And so like when you think about what are the species that humans 100% drove to extinction and, and the Dodo is, is is like the symbol of it, right? I don't know if it's, there's many other examples of human caused extinction, but that is the symbol that the world has like latched onto. And so we saw it as an opportunity. If we're going to build the world's first de-extinction company, we felt like we had to, you know, tackle the, do- the Dodo project. And then also as we started to get into the science of bringing back the Dodo, we realized there's just really not enough... Uh, technologies around bird conservation, bird genetics, most people are focusing on more on the mammalian side because of its potential help with human healthcare, right? And so not enough money is going into bird conservation. So it was for us, it was like a double-edged sword. One, we could bring back this iconic species, which is like so important to the Mauritian people and the Mauritian culture and ecosystem. It's a symbol of extinction, which we can de-extinct, and we can also build technologies to help conservation in birds. So we were pretty excited.
1: There's more than a little Jurassic Park in this conversation. The whole sort of de-extinction we, we concept. We get that. We,
7: we 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 do get the Jurassic Park comment occasionally, believe it or not.
1: I, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's a very cool concept, not least, you know, that's why movies have been made of it. And you're not going for dinosaurs, which is reassuring. But how are you going to de-extinct uh, this bird?
7: Yeah. So the avian work is slightly different than that of the mammalian work, but fundamentally, they're very, very similar in kind of their approaches. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to get ancient DNA. So then you have to assemble that ancient DNA. So think of it as like the world's worst puzzle. So you have to use AI and software and a bunch of different tools to actually assemble the ancient DNA. And then you have to do sequencing on its closest living relative. So in the case of the woolly mammoth, that's the Asian elephant. But in the case of the Dodo, it's actually the Nicobar pigeon, which is beautiful. It's like this colorful, like, rainbow bird that you when you think of the dodo, it's the last thing you think of as beautiful, right? At least that's what conjures in our head. And so once you do the sequencing of that and you've got the sequencing rebuilt to the ancient genome, you use software and technologies to do comparative genomics between them to understand what genes made a dodo a dodo and what genes made a mammoth a mammoth. And then you start engineering those into different cell lines so that you can then get to the point that you have a cell that you can then... Put into a surrogate. And in the case of birds, it's slightly different because we can't do bird cloning yet. I, I don't like to use the word impossible, right? But right now, it's not currently possible to do bird cloning. So you actually have to edit what's called primordial germ cells or PGCs. And so unlike the mammalian work that we're doing, you can't just take a cell and start editing. You actually have to cultivate in a special kind of media primordial germ cells or PGCs in pigeons, which no one's ever done before.
1: It does sound, therefore, that it's slightly harder to do this de-extinction experiment with birds than it is with mammals.
7: I wouldn't say it's like parts are harder and in, in, in other parts are easier, right? So, like a part that's easier is gestation, right? So, once you have edited primordial germ cells, you actually insert them into sterile chickens. Those two chickens mate, and then the offspring has those edited. PGCs that create an offspring. So they've done this in ducks, right? They've taken edited primordial germ cells from ducks. They put them into these sterile chickens. These sterile chickens mate. They lay an egg and it opens or it hatches. And guess what? It's a duck, right? Isn't that that's crazy, right? So I will say... That what's great about birds is, you know, it happens in about 30 days. It's self-contained and it grows mostly ex utero, right? In an egg. And, And so it's a lot easier on the gestation side, unlike our mammoth project, which is 22 months of gestation in an elephant, right? So you gotta transfer the embryo and do IVF in an elephant. It's a much harder process. And so there's parts of the project with the the birds that are much harder in terms of cultivating those primordial germ cells on the front end, but then the back end of the project's significantly easier because gestation happens in an egg. I wish we could grow elephants and eggs, but we can't currently
1: can I talk about something else that's probably quite difficult and that is the ethics around this subject. Like Is it a good idea to bring de-extinct animals back? You know, is there a concern that, you know, the ecosystem has adjusted to exist without them and to then reinsert them is a problem?
7: Yeah. So, I mean, so we're working with Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and the Mauritian government. Right. And so if you look at biodiversity loss, we are traveling towards a cliff where we're going to lose up to 50% of all biodiversity between now and 2050 if we don't do anything. Modern conservation works, but it doesn't work at the speed we need it to in the world and the speed at which humans are destroying the planet and changing the ecosystem. And most people don't realize this, but a more diverse ecosystem is a healthier ecosystem. It sequesters more carbon. It suppresses more methane. It it increases food security. There's a million benefits that comes from a Healthy ecosystem. And when you remove a keystone species, whether it's a predator like the thylacine or uh, a large herbivore that's a keystone species like an elephant or the mammoth, or even a a bird like the dodo, the ecosystem changes, right? And so, reintroduction of the dodo back into Mauritius is not one that's going to vastly change the ecosystem, but we're actually using it as an opportunity with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation to go in. And clean up and remove some of the invasive species that not only led to the extinction of the dodo, but also have led to predation on some of the existing biodiversity of Mauritius that is also starting to go extinct because of these other animals, right, that shouldn't be there. And so, we as humans, from an ethics perspective, have been changing the environment. We've been polluting, we've been poaching. We've been killing off these animals and we've been ruining these different environments. And what we found is that nature is pretty smart about how it does things. And so if we can help empower nature and return it back to the state before humans started to change it, well, then we're in a better situation where the environment is a healthier, better and, and diverse ecosystem, which is good for all plant and animal life. You may find this fascinating. They recently took a large species of tortoises that were actually in Seychelles, They've they've been extinct now and they got eradicated from Mauritius. They reintroduced them back into Mauritius. And all of a sudden, this specific type of plant that they haven't seen in Mauritius for quite some time started to show up again. And what they found was that those tortoises... With when they eat other types of plants and they eat these seeds, the way their digestive tract works is it made them more viable to grow and in, in, in whatnot. So there's, so you, you just the reintroduction of a tortoise led to these other species of plants that used to be endemic to Mauritius start to show up again. And so that's why human involvement in ecosystems has been truly detrimental to biodiversity. And so I would argue that it's unethical not to pursue these technologies because we're the ones that messed up these environments in the first place. And we have an opportunity to restore balance through technology.
1: How soon do you reckon you're going to get this dodo thing figured out?
7: Yeah. So I feel we feel pretty confident, right? We've got a big team. You know, we've got over a hundred scientists and 60 plus scientific collaborators from around the world and five labs. We are trying to be more judicious about announcing timelines. We have announced that our first mammoth calves, we hope to be born in 2028. We feel very good about that timeline. But at the same time, I would say that we have other species like the dodo that have much shorter gestational times. So I wouldn't be surprised if other species came before the mammoth. But I will say that the, the date that we have set publicly is 2028. And since that's such a big, hairy, colossal goal, we're not announcing a hard date on any other animals. But I will say, I don't believe the mammoth will be the first, if that's helpful.
1: <laughs> it, the mammoth feels like it's sort of from the dinosaur period. And it does. I think- What's
7: crazy about that is like when people were building the pyramids, there were mammoths like early humans also hunted mammoths and actually some of the predation against mammoths by early humans actually led to the demise of the mammoths right the mammoth was not around 65 million years ago with the dinosaurs but for some reason i don't know it's because the movie ice age or whatnot people put mammoths back into this like mythical time period, but but they they weren't. They actually were you know, only when extinct three or 4,000 years ago. So still a long time, but it wasn't as long as 65 million years ago. And so it is crazy to think that when humans were building the pyramids, there were mammoths running around.
1: Ben Lam there, CEO and co-founder and lead paleogeneticist at Colossal Biosciences, opening our minds to the idea that woolly mammoths and dodos could once again... Roam the Earth. It is now time for us to hear a little bit more about all the latest sporting news. Chris McCarty, our editor of Sport, has very kindly sent us through this report.
0: A very happy new year. Yes, I can get away with saying that. It's the first time that we've caught up and it's only January 9th. When is the cut-off point for that? I think you get... A couple of weeks at least But that's a conversation for a different day Great to be catching up with you again And let's start with the big news that broke late last night And sad news in the world of football One of the greatest ever Franz Beckenbauer The German legend passing away at the age of 78 What a career this man had He played over 550 times for his beloved beloved Bayern Munich He would also win the European Championship of Germany back in 1970. His greatest moment, however, coming in 1974, he would captain Germany to World Cup success. That 2-1 victory over Johan Cruyff's Netherlands. He would then go on later, of course, to manage Germany to success in the 1998 World Cup final. An absolute superstar of a player. You know, he really is up there in the same breath as a Pele, a Diego Maradona, a Johan Cruyff was Franz Beckenbauer. He was silky smooth. He was also had a plenty of grit as well, and he will absolutely be a, a man who will be revered until eternity. What an incredible player, an incredible man he was as well. Franz Beckenbauer, who died last night at the age of 78. Other sports news uh, to look back on over the course of the last 24 hours and big news out of the world of golf. Tiger Woods is association with Nike is over. It's a relationship that has spanned some 27 years. He won all 82 of his PGA Tour victories with the Nike swoosh on his chest. Of course, those 50 major titles coming with Nike at his side as well. But that relationship, no suggestion that it's acrimonious or has soured. This is merely the end of what has been a hugely profitable partnership for both Nike as well as Tiger Woods, some suggestions that Tiger has made close to a half a billion dollars with his association of Nike. Really interested to see what happens next for Tiger, some suggestions that he will et, sign an exclusive deal with Made Golf. So keep an eye on that. And that's a couple of your big stories. Guess the other one from last night in the Emirates FA Cup third round action. The final tie of the round, Manchester United defeating Wigan Athletic by two goals to nil. Diego Dallo and Bruno, Fernandez on the score sheet, a little bit of pressure eases off of Eric Ten Hag as well. So I get you back up to date with the sport. Great to catch up with you again, Georgia. Looking forward to what promises to be an incredible year of sport in 2024.
1: And he's back for the new year. Many thanks indeed, Chris McCarty. If you want to hear more from Chris and Robbie and, of course, Sonal, uh, there is plenty to look forward to on our schedule today because they will be back for your drive time show at 5pm today all the way through until 8pm. Always a very good listen indeed. But, yes, huge thanks there to Chris for bringing us up to date with all the latest sporting news. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.